Well, I mean, you know, we're through, aren't we? I guess we'll get straight into that hot mess that that game was. And fundamentally, the job is done and we move on to face Bilbao on March the 8th. And that's good, I suppose. I think any time you start the game with a midfield of Jisung Park and a two-thirds fit Tom Cleverley, you're probably not going to get the most together coherent performance out of the side no that's right and and much like in uh, previous games uh, in Europe this season and indeed in the Carling Cup as well chop, chopped and changed there Ferguson and, and it didn't have the kind of fluent response we might like I mean uh, United okay in the first half I mean uh, better than the first half in the away leg for sure uh, but not a lot more than okay and then Ajax fully deserved uh, their goals in the second half um, dominated possession created better chances United completely off the boil, uh, calm the game down a little bit by bringing Paul Skulls on. You know he'll be doing that when he's 50, I think, at this rate. And but no real threat after that from United. And in the end, probably the right result. And then that's a, you know what is that? Eight games in a row that United have been subpar in Europe. Now I, I'm, I'm not giving a, I'm not giving us a very high score away at Ajax, even though we won. It was a, it was pretty average performance for about 60 minutes. So um, it's it's worrying. Although Athletic Bilbao in the next round. Fine, fascinating club we can talk about this in a minute but but it's going to be a real challenge actually athletic yeah i mean we'll we'll probably do the big athletic stuff when we do the match preview for that i i thought that united were really truly excellent in the first 10 minutes dimitar berbatov looked incredibly up for it played a stunningly stunningly weighted pass for chicharito who took his finish really well really composed and and we looked you know we looked like we were firing on all cylinders there was, there was a lot of tempo a, a lot of dynamism and a lot of um, cohesive attacking football but that lasted for about 10 to 15 minutes in the first half and then in the second half as you say we had a decent period of play after skulls and I think uh, obviously skulls was the the most obvious change in the game but I think there was an enormous difference having Johnny Evans in the center of defense uh, and Phil Jones in midfield rather than having Phil Jones in the center of defense because I think some of United's frailty not not all of it but a decent amount of United's frailty was down to having Jones at, at centre half where he just just does not look that assured yeah inter- interesting argument there I, I mean I'm not really sure that United's problems were to do with the centre of defence really it was it was far more to do with uh, having the wrong balance in midfield I mean much of the game bypassed Tom Cleverley not not surprising really he's he's not fit yet and Park Ji-sung conspired to give the ball away every time he got it uh, he's been doing that for six years at Old Trafford now so why should we be surprised about that one. Evans uh, did okay. I mean, I, I have to say, I think he made a mistake for the for the second goal, the winning goal for Ajax, in that he stopped and uh, didn't follow the runner, which was pretty criminal, really. He's that's uh, for a defender now who's not inexperienced. He he shouldn't have done that. Black mark there. Uh, I suppose some people would try and blame De Gea, and that uh, I mean they thought he could come ten yards off his line, but that was never going to happen. And and uh, it was hit with such force from close range, there's no chance for him stopping it. So uh, I think the major problem with United the balance wasn't quite right in midfield and it's a debate we've had for so long now and, and bringing Skulls on to control tempo playing Jones in there to at least give United a bit more bite corrected the problems that were there for the first sort of 75 minutes of the game or whatever it was so that helped but it, but it did break up United's attacking fluency in, in some way what there was from the first half um, because Skulls and Jones both sat very deep but it was exactly what uh, United needed to do at the time didn't have the right effects in the end I suppose 
Well, then five minutes after, I mean, I mean, I thought Ferguson handled it beautifully, considering how the game was kind of slipping out of our control. And, you know, yeah, we, we did concede again, but by that point, you know, we had, I think we would have conceded sooner had he not made the changes he made. I, I mean, obviously that's just pure speculation, but the way it was going, it, it was looking like that was what was going to happen. And Skull's coming on five minutes after that, he added Welbeck to the mix. And a couple of times we did have quite threatening counter-attack opportunities with a, right, a, yeah. a bit of a, an attacking prong from Welbeck. And unfortunately it didn't, it just didn't quite fall off the boot right in the, in the final passage of play. But I, you know, it wasn't a totally terrible performance from United it was just really really subpar and you know Jones was interviewed after the game the Preston Pele uh, who I think may have had blue highlights uh, which is a, a slight worry actually I say it's a slight worry maybe we should embrace it maybe the fact that you know our all conquering young Roy the Rovers type has blue highlights is a good thing I'm not sure blue highlights are ever a good thing it's the wrong colour for a start someone needs to get onto him about that one. Oh yeah that's true actually yeah maybe it was a, a bet I just assume all United players haircuts are a bet of some kind but I think it might just be that I'm now an old man but yeah I mean I, I thought it was a an obviously a below par performance from United but um, it wasn't a disaster in that it wasn't a disaster I mean it, it was kind of disaster narrowly averted but we're through absolutely I guess I guess that's the the name of the game isn't it but I mean look let's face it we're playing uh, an Ajax side that is is not the force it once was and many many years since the Nike side was a force of course who who are not going great guns in very busy one and heavily at the weekend but generally speaking it's not been a great uh, season on the pitch obviously we, we spoke about it a couple of weeks ago about the disaster off the pitch that is Ajax this, this is a club that everyone in Holland was expecting to be beaten heavily by United and maybe part of that was on reputation so in that respect it wasn't great at all from United over the two legs I don't think we put in a we put in about a half's worth of good performance over the two legs yeah no that that's Which right. is, to be fair, a half more of good performance than we put in again in four games against Benfica and, and Basel in the Champions League uh, group stage. So maybe that's an improvement. Yes, but it is a sorry state of affairs, and and I don't quite understand why it's like this. I mean, I guess I guess if you look at the team sheet, the first thing that leaps out is well, the middle of the pitch is quite an important area of the pitch, right? <laughs> Almost all play at some point is going to go through the middle of the pitch. So if you if you have right. an unmatched pairing in the centre of midfield you're really going to have problems I think if you put Park Carrick and Cleverly in a three-man central midfield each with a defined role that could be extraordinarily effective but but Park and Cleverly on their own it's it's kind of asking for trouble yeah look Ferguson basically his first priority was to give minutes to players who needed the minutes and that's it second priority was to make sure United did enough to get through and and uh, in that respect he, he He's got it right, but it's uh, it's not exactly adding to the fluency and confidence to, to be beaten at home. But, uh, I mean, look, Premier League is a priority quite clearly, and, and rightly so, and, and that's why Ferguson's done it. I mean, there's a game in about 60 hours after the final whistle, United will kick off against Norwich, and it's not exactly a lot of preparation time, and, and Ferguson's uh, changed the team around for that reason. So, I mean, do you really think that he was more concerned with getting minutes in legs than getting through? You, you think he would rather say play Tom Cleverley for 60 minutes and lose then not play him no I don't think that's a calculation he's making I, I don't think Ferguson necessarily puts aside out to lose ever but he's he's taking a gamble there right he, he must know that that not playing what would normally be his first 11 with players who are fit and sharp and 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 so on is going to have an effect on the side uh, you 
can't tell me that he'd have picked that eleven if Manchester City were um, at Old Trafford. Oh no, of, uh, of course, of course not. Yeah, um, for, for for a Premier League game, so quite clearly he's just taken a, a gamble there. It's paid off, and and most of the time with Ferguson it does pay off. Sometimes it doesn't. Crystal Palace at home, it didn't. Few the Champions League group games, it didn't. Where he made uh, perhaps too many changes, and and it didn't against Ajax. Insofar as United lost the game, it got through just about. Thank thanks to Javier Hernandez late goal over in in Amsterdam. Yes, and how crucial was that goal? I mean, I remember thinking at the moment it went in. Oh my goodness! Thank goodness for that because that's just saved us from a really really uncomfortable time. And actually, we still had a pretty uncomfortable last ten minutes, but could have been an awful lot worse if he hadn't nicked one at the end of that game and one at the beginning of this game. Although, of course, the yeah. one in, I can I always get confused by European away goal maths, but the one at the beginning of this game. Oh yeah, no, of course it was crucial. Yeah, see, told you I was confused. Well, they they're, they're all crucial. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we needed we needed all of them. Is yeah, that's that's exactly. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the comparison Manchester City is obvious, isn't it? I mean, City thumped Porto yesterday after an even earlier goal and uh, are, are looking good and confident and played all the big guns and and uh, there's a City side that's now going into the weekend weekend games full of confidence. So United uh, won't quite get the same thing from this, but uh, Ferguson got out of it what he needed and and off off we go to uh, Athletic Bilbao. I, I fascinate. I, I love Athletic Bilbao as a as a concept and a club. I mean, this is one of the socios in in Spain. There's only actually four. It's always a bit of a myth that all Spanish clubs are owned by the fans, but but it's not true. They're they're one of the four owned by the fans. You know, run this Cantero system where all the players are Basque. They've, you know, they've kind of slightly relaxed it now, where players are, who are Basque or have Basque heritage, or in fact now have been uh, uh, trained from a, a youth age in a Basque club, are now accepted into the club. But but it means that the majority of players, a vast majority of players, are, are Basque. And, and Marcelo Bielsa, who's the coach, obviously famous Argentinian coach, won the won the Olympics with them, and, uh, produced a fantastic Chile side in the last World Cup. And I think it'd be a really good fixture with them. They're a good side. Let's uh, I think they're a better side than Ajax, and uh, it'll be a real test for United now. Yeah, I mean, hopefully we'll we won't have been on the sort of back end of the kind of injury situation that we're in at the moment. I mean, Rooney, of course, crucially absent from the fixture today. I, I think he probably would have played if he was fit, maybe. I don't think he would have just left him out. Maybe he would have done, but but apparently with a sore throat, do, do, do we think he's going to be back for Norwich? As Fergie said, they're trying to get him ready. So, I mean, he didn't train. He didn't go in and train all week. So if he doesn't train on Friday, then that's a bit of a problem and he might not play in that case. But uh, I'm sure they're doing everything they can. I mean, it's going to be pretty sore throat to keep him out. Uh, but if he's ill, he's ill. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. You know, if you sore throat makes it sound like oh, pull your sock, socks up, take your gloves off, and uh, get on with the game. But actually, if you've got like horrible tonsillitis and a fever and stuff, you're probably not going to be able to play football at a very high level. No, which of course is what United did on Thursday night against Ajax. Not play football at a very high level. But uh, talking of players manning up, uh, Arsenal lost two 0 to Sunderland at the weekend, and Manchester United legend Roy Keane said, "Look at this team. Is the worst." Worst Arsenal team I've ever seen. Look at them. There's five or six of them wearing gloves. No footballer should would, should ever wear gloves. And I believe that you and I may come down on different sides of uh, Glovegate. Yeah, I'm, absolutely. I'm, I'm with Roy all the way here. I think it's a disgrace. It should be banned. I mean, it, what, what is it? It's, it's gloves. It's snooze. It's tights. There, there was a time and a place where this was a man's game. And now look at them. Yeah, but, you know, they're better at football now. Although they're not as good at manliness, admittedly, with certain exceptions. They're, you know, the technical 
side of the game has improved vastly. The nutritional understanding. If you right, if your hands are freezing cold, your body is working harder than it would have to if your hands had gloves on, and it's working for the task irrelevant to football of keeping your hands warm. And you can't stop your body from doing that. And even Roy Keane can't, you know, look at his immune system and say, "Oh, you keep the temperature down." What performance inhibitors are there in having a few cold fingers? You're using resources that could otherwise be going to your brain. Your heart to pump your blood around the body. <laughs> no, no, you're, no, I'm not, I'm not like being ridiculous. You're literally, you have to, okay, we're warm blooded creatures and it, it costs energy to heat us up. And that's energy that we could be using for other tasks if we're professional footballers. And you know, Well, my, my new Arsenal players don't like to use a lot of energy full stop, do they? So. Yeah, I'm not, by the way, uh, it, Arsenal being rubbish is not the bit I disagree with uh, Sir Roy about. I bet Roy would have loved to play against his Arsenal side. He'd just stare at them and then he'd have won the game. I mean, he had to shout a few times at Vieira in order to win the game in the tunnel before, but this time round, they, they'd be quivering. I don't think they'd even come out of the dressing room. <laughs> I think... I'm with Roy on this one. Yeah, OK. They're soft. No, I, I, Modern football is rubbish. I, I think I think gloves should be compulsory for footballers on cold days. That's, that's, I'm so in... I'm so team gloves, it's unreal. You've had some horrible experience on the play fields when you were 10 or something where it was a bit cold and you didn't like it and no at twisted blood wrote a fantastic article on sb nation about this very subject and he mentioned the cold playing fields and somehow sport being connected to suffering you know when really there's no need for it to be but anyway it's a pretty huge digression but i think we probably need a couple of huge digressions one thing that came up time and again both during the ix game and in our questions uh, when i put out a shout for questions one from at mier to 23 will Pogba stay uh, the complete absence of Pogba really really telling I thought given that Fergie in his interview with DJ Spoonie over the week during the week kind of said somewhat off the cuff you know Rio's been talking to Pogba because he doesn't know what he wants to do yes well he's not going to want to say United he's not playing interesting piece in Corriere della Sport uh, a couple of days ago picked up by the Daily Mail today uh, unfortunately saying that Pogba had already agreed a four-year contract with Juventus and all that was to be done was to put sign on the dotted line and and seal the deal now Pogba's agent was name-checked in it and always gets the alarm bells ringing I think when the agent is name checked in an article and uh, I think that's probably a plant to, to hurry other people along and maybe push United into increasing the deal uh, that is on the table for the player but at the moment it doesn't look very good so if a player's coming into the last few months of a contract and he still hasn't agreed one after all these months of talking uh, you'd say that the parties are too far apart and, and uh, the player not playing probably isn't going to help matters much but, but there you go if Ferguson uh, doesn't think he's ready to play or didn't think it was the right decision wanted that strength on the bench then then that's what he wanted and he uh, he's not going to play Pogba out of sentimental reasons but but um, it doesn't look good it looks like United are going to lose uh, two of the best players out of that youth side from last season in Morrison and, and Pogba and uh, it strikes me as being a bit careless yeah I mean uh, I was until you said that last bit I, you sort of sounded pretty I thought you sounded like quite relaxed about the whole situation and to me it's like fairly serious thing that a, 
a player of that talent. And, you know, th- there's been a lot of talk about greed and the player wanting more than he's worth and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, as you said, the market will dictate value. And if certain things are in demand, then you have to pay for those things. And if one of those things is young, talented footballers, you know, the, the price of a young, talented footballer is not what it was two years ago because the football landscape has changed so much. It's just a fact, right? If, if he's demanding X per week and, and United are only prepared to pay Y, but another club will come up with the X, then then there's a good chance that United are going to are going to lose him. And there's only so far you can go with we're United. You should stay here. The riches will come to you later. And, and we've heard all these messages, and it's all very true. If he's as good as we hope he will be, then he will be fabulously rich, and uh, his second contract with United will be very big. I mean, only need to look at Tom Cleverley and Chris Smalling in the last year, who've gone from reasonable wages, the kind of wages that United will probably offer Pogba for this contract to big big wages and 50 grand plus kind of wages that Pogba probably wants not not right now but you know down the line so absolutely that argument is fair that he will become very rich at United if he sticks around and if he's good enough but doesn't mean there isn't the immediate impetus to a get a price that his a him and his agent think is is available on the market and and b potentially uh, get some games if he's not getting them at Old Trafford. I mean that that's the thing, isn't it? Because presumably Juventus, if I mean assuming this isn't just paper talk and agent talk, presumably Juventus. Well, it, it is paper and agent talk, but there's there's something in it. Yeah. Yeah. Just sorry, as as soon as it's not just mm. purely that, you know, then presumably whoever's offering Pogba the kind of wages he's demanding is also planning to play him regularly, and I. I just don't I just don't understand well, he's, it. He's very attractive because he he's going to be an effectively a free Right, and that makes him a, a a very good gamble, right? So even if he does want you know slightly inflated wages for an eighteen year old, it's okay because what are you going to offer him a three year contract on slightly inflated wages with no transfer fee, and he could become a, a really fine player. So it's it's worth the gamble uh, whether you're going to play him or not. And uh, you suspect that Juventus at slightly lower level than United are probably more prepared to play him than United are. Yeah, it just seems like it's a similar level of a gamble for us. I basically what this comes down to is I really don't understand this situation and I assume that Fergie knows what he's doing if there's one thing history has proven it's that Fergie knows what he's doing about this stuff yes well Gerard Piquet and uh, Giuseppe Rossi might disagree with that one but uh, look hey well yeah absolutely I hope he signs uh, I think he he has the potential to become a very good player I don't think he's quite ready yet and uh, I don't really place any criticism on Ferguson for not playing him against Ajax Fergie played a, a fairly inexperienced young son many players he hadn't got a lot of time and he packed his bench with experience uh, as a result and I don't think anyone could argue with that really yeah absolutely so talking of the boss he gave a rare in-depth interview this week an hour long on Radio 5 and I sort of kind of flinched a bit when I heard it was with Spoonie but actually I thought Spoonie did a, a really really good job he didn't approach it journalistically he approached it like a chat show and basically had an hour long conversation with Fergie and then put it on the radio it, it, he wasn't there to ask tough questions because you'd never get the gig that way you know you'd never get him to appear on a with Paxman or whatever but 
but by relaxing him, I thought some quite interesting stuff came out. Yeah, some some quite interesting stuff. Yes, you're right. The tough questions weren't asked. Didn't didn't broach any of the really tough subjects really and a lot of stock answers but an hour with Fergie that we don't normally get and a bit more insight uh, than we than we normally get because he, he's obviously very reticent to talk to the press uh, mostly his uh, reaction and interaction with the press is, uh, is one of attrition and war and it's very aggressive on Fergie's part and, and this was a very different Ferguson this was Ferguson relaxed uh, with someone he knows socially and, and got some nice stuff out of Ferguson I thought I mean the uh, revelation that uh, he's effectively been offered a job this I wouldn't say maybe not a revelation he he's spoken about this before that there'd be some kind of post with United post retirement whenever that is um, talked about Kathy's role and I think we know who wears the trousers in the Ferguson household talked a little bit about his uh, sons uh, laughed hilariously at some jokes which perhaps he shouldn't laugh quite so hilariously at but but it was it was a nice hour wasn't it it was pretty quick that was it was pretty quick and I, I think Fergie was just laughing to demonstrate to Spoonie that he'd got the reference if you know what I mean when he when he when he dropped the body so what do you think what do you think about uh, Ferguson's insistence once again that he's got a role at United after the after retirement whenever that comes I mean red issue this month and and it's just another voice in the massive voices uh, saying that 20, it's 2013 and the, and uh, I have to say I, I spoke to someone else who said you know all the noises are 2014 so that probably means it's 2013 and I, I don't know for years I thought it was 2012 so look none of us know do we but but what kind of role should he have afterwards if any at all it's weird that it came up this week in such a big way given that we spoke about it quite extensively mm. last week on the well, show he lis- we know he listens so yeah hi folks <laughs> It's further proof. I mean, you particularly said, you know, and, and actually I completely agree, you said it would be kind of crazy to have him in a major role at the club when the new man comes in, but obviously Fergie's got no intention of leaving. But, you know, if he's there in a, in a kind of Bobby Charlton capacity, that's one thing. But but it's very different because Bobby Charlton now is a player who played 40 years ago and kind of never managed the club and, and is an icon of the club but doesn't have nearly the same kind of shadow that he'd be casting over a new manager but but Fergie's shadow will well as you say 12 foot letters staring at him every week well I, I don't think he could uh, be in a Bobby Charlton role I mean Bobby Charlton is a kind of ambassador for the club but he's also a director right he doesn't have executive power at the club but he does sit in the upper le- echelons of the club and and presumably will be involved in discussions about the uh, the replacement for Ferguson and in theory if Ferguson was in that kind of role would would be involved in the discussions about the the ongoing performance of the new manager and um, that's a that's a kind of pressure i'm not sure that's uh, fair on whoever's coming in so um there is going to be a massive shadow i, I think if, they, if they're going to have ferguson uh, have some kind of role it's got to be an outward facing media work with the sponsors whatever uh, that kind of thing is globe trotting presumably more work with the sponsors than work with the media given his history well that but that's the thing if he's an ambassador it is work with the media that's the whole they're all it's all about the media because it's about getting united's name in association with xyz sponsor into whatever media is they're trying to target at the time so it's not a role you'd say necessarily suit ferguson but maybe away from the day-to-day intensity of trying to win games ferguson will become his normal self uh, which is a much more relaxed ferguson the kind of ferguson we saw with uh, or heard with spoonie and uh, and not this kind of combative one who feels that he's 
he's at war with the press all the time. Maybe. I think having him anywhere near Old Trafford or anywhere near Carrington can't be a good thing. I mean, United are not going to appoint a kid to this next role. They're not going to appoint Ryan Giggs or Ali Gunnar It's fanciful. Just, it might sound great and it's romantic for the fans, but this is a £2 billion corporation that has hundreds of millions of pounds of assets on its books that needs to be winning, needs to be successful. The owners are not going to appoint a kid. It's going to be someone experienced. It's probably going to be Jose Mourinho. Now, he's the kind of character that can cope with Ferguson's shadow because he's big enough. But as soon as he feels like Ferguson's stepping into the the arena, he's going to say it, right? Just as uh, he did with Jorge Valdano, uh, the general manager at Real Madrid. He got him sacked, basically. He he basically said, him or me. And this is is a guy who uh, was very important in the Real Madrid hierarchy. So, uh, you know, I I think they're storing up some really big problems to come with have focusing in any kind of senior management type role. If it's ambassadors and he's globetrotting and he's a face and he's involved with sponsors and all that kind of stuff, fine. Um, I, I should just say that at Sporty Muslima asked a very detailed question, which you've basically, and she kind of broke it down point by point, but you've you've answered every point. But I think you're right. And someone else tweeted that Andre Villas-Boas is kind of demonstrating the reason why Ole Gullis Solskjaer can't be the next United manager and you know it's not a one-for-one correlation by any means but there is something in that you know that what's happening to Villas Boas at the moment is in large part because of his youth I mean Chelsea the Chelsea dressing room has wrecked a whole bunch of managers in the past but they've never been this bad on the pitch whilst doing it yeah I mean it's slightly different in that Andres Villas Boas has the Chelsea dressing room and there's a whole bunch of massive egos who've been taught over the last oh, four years since uh, Jose left that uh, they are the people in real power and uh, their voice counts more than the managers so that's different I, I can't imagine that Ferguson is going to leave a squad that would be the same kind of characters as John Terry and Ashley Cole and Frank Lampard and Didier Drogba who are the real troublemakers at Chelsea at the moment so that that won't happen but still look I mean the original point I bet I made I, it's the Ferguson says it's the most important job at the club and who are we to argue with that this is a senior management role at a massive corporation uh, if football is the only business on the planet that appoints people to a senior management key management role strategically important often without even an interview uh, which is absolutely extraordinary let alone the kind of due diligence that uh, an executive in a in a similar sized corporation would be appointed to so um i think it's madness to think that uh, a 30 year old kid would uh, would take over at united uh, it is as, as marcello lippi once said of Gianluca Viali's appointment at Chelsea it's like putting a learner driver in charge of an F1 car it's not going to happen at United and and rightly so I think and and, uh, so there we can kill that one and uh, I I think the thought of Ferguson somehow tutoring the younger guy would be even worse because all the the fans and all the players and everyone else would know exactly who's in charge yeah and in fact at Expertie asked the same question Um, he's just by the way started a phenomenal blog called uh, Beautifully Red which you can find at beautifullyred.co.uk I've had a look it's very nice picks out key moments of games and uses animated GIFs to avoid the YouTube terrible YouTube problem of trying to share cool bits of football that the Premier League is broken in the brain uh, and just thinks that a 30 second clip on YouTube somehow devalues their copyright when surely actually massively enhances the value the commercial value of their copyright 
holdings. Right, it's a very good argument. It's exactly the kind of argument that was used with the music industry 15 years ago, and they eventually got it. It took them a very, very long time to, to work out that uh, wide distribution is a, is a good thing and promotes your brand, and uh, that's that's what we want, isn't it? What next? The, uh, the Premier League is going to turn around to all the newspapers and blogs writing and say, actually, you can't use the word Premier League anymore because that's our copyright. And, oh, actually, wait there, they do do that because if you try and put two or more fixtures on a blog, you get a letter from the football data company saying that you owe them £200 as a licence fee and if you don't pay it they're going to take you to court so sorry for that rant there but yeah you're absolutely right they're up their own backsides firmly Uh, it's it's particularly ridiculous you know you compare it to the music industry in football's case it's particularly ridiculous because it's not offering direct competition in in music case at least they could say well kids are just watching it on YouTube instead of buying the record you know there's there's a logic leap there and actually that probably doesn't work out in the long run but with football it's like people are not watching 30 second clips on YouTube instead of watching the game you know they're using it to enhance their enjoyment of the game after the fact and there isn't a commercial service offering the same thing really no anyway that's but beautifullyred.co.uk check it out because it is beautiful and red very good Uh, something that's not so beautiful is Manchester United's balance sheet so I've had a request from Funky Carrick not our funky central midfield northeasterner, um, but but uh, a listener of ours, for me to ask you to explain what the heck's going on with the finances in a thoroughly dumbed down fashion. So I'm going to be asking you questions until I understand this. And, and fair enough, it's, it's a good way to do it. Normally we get asked for me to not talk about the football finances, and this is the bit where everyone turns off, <laughs> uh, except for like 10% of our listenership who are like totally committed to the football finance bit. So guys, this bit's for you, Ed. Q2 was results came out this week what does it all mean well oh good question what does it all mean how do you feel yeah that's, it's the one it's the it's your stock uh, stock question that one well uh, the q2 results or first half results uh, are generally the most boring of the results okay yeah. sorry sorry i'm gonna interrupt a few times but i'll try not to do it too often when you say the first half results does that mean these results were talking about the whole period of the first half of the financial year or were they talking about the second quarter uh, both. Okay. Right, so, so so United's financial year runs 1st of July to 31st of June. Uh, so we're talking about six months from the 1st of July to the 31st of December and the second quarter. So um, uh, basically it covers that. Uh, and well, what does it mean? Most of it won't surprise anyone. But this is, as I said, it's a boring quarter in that there's, there's no big swings in anything. This isn't the quarter where United get all their season ticket money in uh, or spend all that season ticket money in the transfer market, we hope, or or don't depending on who you are so there's no real massive swings you get a consistent number of games generally and and so on so generally speaking the results were as expected there was an increase in commercial income that reflected the new deal with dhl sponsoring the training kits there was uh, an increase again uh, this is a year on year twice now increase in wages which is uh, pretty disturbing i think if you're being counter old trafford because it means that uh, the wages are rising faster than 
revenue at the moment and so that's pretty difficult so we're going to down economy with several senior players leaving and the wage bill is still rising and of course we had a few more come in and then uh, people like Chris Smalling Tom Cleverley got new deals and that's uh, it's causing United to sprint very fast to stand still or in fact risk of uh, falling off the back of the treadmill at the moment I heard the, the thing about the wage rises and I didn't understand it because I thought that the whole thing about you know Fergie said getting rid of some players enabled me to buy which flew in the face of things that he said previously so I, I had understood that losing O'Shea and Brown and Skulls and Van der Sar from the wage bill and bringing in Young and De Gea and uh, Jones was a net reduction in the wage bill which kind of over the over the period of the contract amortised again for the previous quarter uh, the the wage bill was up 12 and a bit percent and it's, it's 17 and a bit percent this time so uh, no it never had that effect but it freed enough from the resources that United were able to go out and spend I mean if uh, Neville Skulls now back of course Van der Zaar and Hargreaves and O'Shea and Brown hadn't gone Ferguson wouldn't have been able to spend anywhere near as much because instead of a 17% rising wages he'd be talking about a 50 or 60% rise in wages so maybe I'm exaggerating there but a significantly higher material difference and uh, and so yes it did allow him to spend it wasn't it wasn't exactly equally balanced on either side but the money was there uh, and also the interesting thing another point in the financials a large reduction in cash this always happens in Q2 anyway so uh, I think there's a bit too much focus in the media on this one so a reduction in United's uh, available cash from about 150 odd million down to about 50 million and this is a reflection both in terms of the time of year and the 47 million nets spent in the summer transfer window and a bit more spent on buying back bonds and i thought this was the most interesting bit part of the whole thing only sort of five and a bit in the the million in the the last quarter but that makes 92.4 million pounds that united have spent on buying back bonds uh, in the last two years since cristiano ronaldo's sale and about if you include all the interest payments and and a few other costs associated costs just over 220 million that's disappeared out of the club uh, as a direct result of the debt uh, in the last two years so that's since we sold cristiano ronaldo we've spent 92 million on buying bonds and 220 million pounds has gone out of the club on debt and servicing the glazers in terms of consultancy fees and yeah Intra- interest fees some finance related fees with uh, issuing the bond and and bond buyback yeah talk about dumbing it down the bond issue was we're going to sell a bunch of the debt in manchester united to other people and they'll buy it and they'll make money out of it somehow using magic finance magic weirdness you know economics and stuff a a bond is like a fancy iou note It, it says here paul i owe you 500 million pounds and uh, because I owe you £500 million, I'm going to pay you the coupon, which is uh, effectively the interest rate, which is 8%. And I'm going to I'm going to keep paying you that until the bond matures in 2017 in this case. But also, because it's a fancy IOU note, you can go and sell that bond on the open market to other people who might want to invest it a bit like a share. So it's like this cross between debt and a share. But it also means the Glazers can go out and buy back some of those bonds. And that's exactly what they've been doing. They've bought back about 20% of those bonds which which in a short term sense makes perfect strategic sense because you're not then paying interest on that part so in theory they keep doing this the the real rate of interest 
interest and it might not reflect it on the books of course but the real rate of interest will be lower the madness comes in when you look at their refinancing because they refinanced bank debt took out this bond which was much more expensive spent a huge amount i mean a really offensive amount of money on the costs associating with with issuing that bond and it makes absolutely no sense because they didn't do the thing that they'd always intended to do which was to take a massive chunk of dividend and go and pay off those picks and and the fan response to the bond issue was was uh, so vocal and so angry that uh, it spooked the glazer family we, we know this is true because it makes no sense whatsoever to have taken this bond out if that wasn't the plan all along so basically that having happened the buyback is a somewhat is it maybe like a okay well the plan plan a has has fallen by the wayside so we need a plan b yeah and plan and plan b is is now to do some buyback of course now they want an ipo they want to float a, a partial ipo uh, most people think and to deleverage before that makes an awful lot of sense of course that makes a lot of sense what doesn't make a lot of sense is for revenues to uh, not be increasing as fast as costs and uh, that's a bit of a problem because they'd like to be see, showing not just revenue growth which is great nice headlines and uh, they always get positive stories because the press don't question the press release that goes out but investors will go hang on a minute profits aren't going to increase if your costs are rising this fast and that's a bit of a problem so so they're, they're having to counterbalance the fact that uh, United's uh, balance sheet isn't isn't going to look as good as they wanted it to uh, not as good as say six months ago even though the revenues are rising and they're going to deleverage a little bit as well which which looks more attractive for investors because it's simple really if you're if you're buying in buying uh, into a business that is spending Fifty percent of its operating income, as United call it, uh, on interest repayments. Then that's not particularly good business, is it? So that makes a lot of sense. It will make them more attractive. Doesn't mean they won't re-leverage in the future, though. That's the key point. At Rob underscore JMO asks the question, which I think you're probably better placed to answer because I think you probably understand the mechanisms better than I do. Reduce the debt and not invest in the squad or invest the squad and not reduce the debt. Can't answer, no glazers. This is not an economics question. This is uh, an either or. Uh, and, and, and of course, United don't have to play that game in, in uh, such extremes. It's, it's definitely not a zero-sum game. So uh, should United be spending money on players or should United be spending money on debt reduction or a bit of both? Well, I don't know the answer to that one. I mean, it depends on whether you want a good team on the pitch and uh, less debt in the bank or you want more debt in the bank and a better team on the pitch. Right, so it's all about intention essentially if you're managing if you're running united for the to make a wonderful manchester united the question's obvious but if you're running manchester united to make a personal profit this is one of the interesting things about the the glazer situation because you know in some ways your brain thinks okay successful business people they're going to be running the asset in order to grow the business and you know make a long-term sustainable fantastic business that will be a huge cash cow for ages to come but if actually what you're motivated for is your personal financial wealth and the well-being of your family financially your decisions are very different because there's loads of things you can do to make loads of money in the short term which are terrible for the club in the long term Mm, absolutely and and this is this is the key point about the glazer family they are not even if they say they're not here for the long term they're here to uh, at the point of maximum value to get out and we don't know what that point of maximum value is by the way 
But at, at that point, they, they will look to get out, and and they've been mulling over their options. And and as soon as they think the markets in the in Singapore are, are right for an IPO, that's when they're going to do that. And that that won't be the exit, of course. That's a partial exit, and that will help them probably deleverage a little bit more of the club. I, I would be really surprised if United was debt free afterwards. It's not really how they run their businesses. I'm sure they'd like to take a chunk out to pay off whatever refinancing they had to take out in the States to pay down those pick loans last year. But you know, if anyone out there is wondering why Manchester United are not competing for the top names in world football in the transfer market in the way they were before the Glazers took ownership, you just have to look at the numbers. It's really, it's the wire, right? It's follow the money. Look how much money has gone out of the club that would not have otherwise gone out of the club. David Cotton, excellent Guardian journalist, he asked two questions. Would United be better or worse off without £500 million having disappeared out of the club over the last I was going to mention David Cotton because, you, you know, you said that the journalists are kind of somewhat slavish to the to the press release and he really is the one massive exception to that in the coverage. Uh, he writes in The Guardian and, and, and it, he does ask pertinent questions even if we can't remember exactly what they are. Look, this is this is why I've I've tried over uh, over the last six years on the blog to explain it in terms that make sense to everyone and and me. And uh, uh, it is a frustrating process going through. It's frustrating being a Manchester United fan. It's very frustrating understanding what's going on and and then hearing the response from fans who have their heads buried in the sands. And there's far too many of those fans who uh, who are happy to see United do well on the pitch and uh, think nothing else matters. But but there is. There is legitimate concern, right? No one's saying that the club's about to go bust. We can afford the interest, right? But, and especially now the, the pick loans are not, well, they're gone, but they've been refinanced and uh, they're not at risk of being put on the club's books at the moment, at least. There's no chance of United going into meltdown, but but it, it's a very, very fine line between success and failure, isn't it, in the top-class sport? And, and sucking out half a billion pounds makes that fine line pretty difficult to keep creeping over every year and, and we're, we're getting to the point as we've spoken about over the last couple of weeks of, of Ferguson coming into retirement and the new man's going to come in he's going to want to do his own thing and he's going to have to work the same miracles with his hands tied behind his back at Oscar Montes 21 says do you think Sir Alex Ferguson retiring will force the Glazers to spend without reinvestment and him I'm not sure the club keeps contending I think that's exactly the point isn't it and I don't know why it would force them because if having Sir Alex at the helm and knowing that your resources are going to be you basically got a pretty much a guaranteed return on your investment in terms of you give Sir Alex Ferguson a load of money he'll build a world beating side time after time that's just not the game that they're in right? No it's not it is going to be a fascinating time I mean we'll see what the dynamic is when Ferguson finally goes I mean if it's if it's 18 months time that Ferguson goes Glazers could well have sold a good chunk of the club by then i mean the way they're proposing to do the ipo in this sort of dual share structure they'll retain almost all the voting rights but they will have sold off some of the economic part of the club and that is definitely a precursor to a full sale at some point so we might be nearing the beginning of the end of the glazers we might not be i mean their strategy has changed significantly over six years so it's very hard to predict that one so time for a bit of lighter material first of all uh, i'd like to give a few shout outs if i may sydney from the united rant boards asked that we mention him uh, after a 100th episode because he said he's fully committed to the concept of United. 
United rant. I think he's demonstrated that admirably over the years. I'd like to say an enormous thanks to Benjamin199, Steveville54, and Silency, who wrote really, really nice reviews of us on iTunes, uh, which is extremely helpful and, and it's always super nice for people to take the time to do that and it, it helps us loads as I say every week so thank you for that and while we're on a uh, lighter subject regular listener and contributor at mark underscore pud uh, asks in the event of a zombie apocalypse which current United player do you want at your side except Vidic that's basically blows it doesn't it because there's two there's two key things to that question one he says current United players which makes it a lot more difficult because otherwise the answer is obviously Roy Keane and then the other thing is we're not allowed to pick Vidic who is obviously the number one choice so who who would you have fighting in your corner well Ed? maybe maybe I'll go for Phil Jones he's got that kind of all action style hasn't he he'd go at them and he wouldn't, he'd be relentless about it alright well if you're going to have him I get to have both the twins because I, I think in a zombie apocalypse it would be crazy to separate the two of them and I think they would be a fearsome zombie fighting unit we, we've seen that Raphael is afraid of absolutely nothing although having thought about it they will get injured quite early in mm, proceedings they are uh, strategic error I think they're uh, well, talking of zombies uh, there are many of them in Norfolk so rumour has it including ladies with web feet and many tractors and United will be going there at the weekend and, and uh, an interesting game uh, six or seven years since United been to Carrow Road and we lost last time as well I can't imagine that's going to happen this time round. Oh no, it's far from possible. I've got, I mean, actually, I'm quite worried about this fixture. Norwich have done very well in their return to the top flight. Your terrible ruralist slurs aside, Norwich is, of course, a fine, thriving city on the east coast of the United Kingdom. The home of Mustard and Alan Partridge. And Stephen Fry. And Stephen Fry. It's very flat. Have you been there? I, I have been. I've been there. It's it's very flat. Yeah. It's it's almost surreal going to that part of the world. You look around and there's just no hills anywhere. Anyway, we digress. They've got no hills, but they have got a mountain in Grant Holt. He, he's done very well from this year. And, and they, they've been a real surprise, I think. But they've done it by playing good, attractive, attacking football as well. And many, many of the sides that come out from the championship and, and play attractive football really struggle, don't they? And, uh, and perhaps it's the ones that are a bit more functional that do well. But not actually going to stay up aren't they and uh, given the size of the club they are and the budget they're on it's a very good effort yeah I mean you say Norwich have been attractive but they're not Swansea you know they're not just like constantly pass and move and you know they're they're, they're quite prepared to lump it and, and play really tough when they need to play tough and I think that's one of the key differences between them and other teams that have come up trying to play kind of gung-ho attacking football to digress Swansea also play very attractive football but they take the thing to heart which you've often said about Barcelona, which is that keeping the ball is an incredibly effective defensive strategy. So, you know, people are like, oh, Swansea are no Blackpool, are they? And it's like, well, not, not of course they're not. They're, they're playing a completely different style. Blackpool were great fun to watch because they were totally committed to attack. But just because you're trying to keep the ball and pass the ball nicely doesn't mean you're attacking. But I, I, don't, I don't think Norwich are, are, you know, Brazil in 1970 or anything, even though they do play in yellow. But they have the capacity to play some nice football. But I'm sure against us, it will be a lot, a lot tougher. I'm sure they'll play the one up front and they'll pack midfield and and, uh, and all of that. Yeah, but I, they've got a really good cushion. They can play with some freedom for the, for the last four months of the season. I mean, they'd have to completely and utterly collapse to, to not be 
safe now in the, the Premier League and, and in Paul Lambert they've got a, a fine young coach there another Scott one of several Scots um, they're making a comeback in the Premier League aren't they Scottish managers they... I, I know it's ridiculously early to be talking about Paul Lambert's long term career because he's he, you know football management is, is so prone to peaks and troughs in terms of success and failure ask Mick McCarthy who's, who's done a fine job at Wolves and uh, got the sack and uh, and uh, there's a club that seemingly has no idea who they're going to actually appoint yeah next. I mean as as all us football manager players know you can't lose 5-1 to your arch rivals when you're in the relegation zone it's, it's a, a classic thing actually it's, it's a, a phenomenally stupid decision to sack Mick McCarthy who has hugely overachieved at Wolves I think it's fair to say but, right, but yeah. he's having a really bad season and he lost 5-1 to the Albion and, and that that's one of those incredibly bitter local rivalries in, in English football yeah they, I mean while we're talking about um, ma- managers uh, it's a lot of criticism of Arsene Wenger at the moment which is understandable I mean seven years without a trophy basically by the end of this season and I, I was having a debate with one of the, the uh, Arsenal blogger tweeters on, on Twitter and uh, thought I'd look into the stats as I am prone to do I like a bit of data dug out how many 13 titles in a 126 years as a club we worked out as one every nine years and, and Wenger's got three in 15 so by that he's overachieved and uh, all the Arsenal fans should eat some humble pie and be thankful they've got Arsene, Arsene Wenger because not only has he achieved loads for that club but he's done it with a much restricted budget over the last three or four years after they, they've been paying for the Emirates so there you go this is me talking football manager it's me on football manager at the press conference going uh, he's doing a fantastic job and the criticism is ridiculous and pressing the back button <laughs> I mean, the the thing is, though, if you were an Arsenal fan, just our horrible thought, but, you know, just imagine that for one moment. Wouldn't you be saying we really, really, really have had enough because Wenger has had enough time to do something about the rut that he's created for himself? Yes, he's been judged by the success that he created in the first place, and, and and that's where it's unfair. I mean, yeah, I mean, look, it's perfectly fair criticism in that there are some obvious flaws in the Arsenal, Arsenal squad which Wenger hasn't fixed, and we're told publicly that there's loads of money available for him to go and fix it, and he hasn't done it. So, uh, yes, totally take that on board. But he is being judged by the success that he created. He he, he built a couple of really excellent uh, Arsenal sides, and he hasn't been able to do that again and that's the, one of the big differences between him and Fergie of course uh, and uh, he's not in the same league there but uh, overall who's going to do a better job given the resources available and the fact that they have been paying down all this debt from the stadium who's going to do a better job with that club given the wealth that Manchester United kind of has and the sovereign wealth that Manchester City definitely has and all the oil money that Chelsea has I, I think we all know as long time rant readers will all agree there's only one man to take over from a super successful manager who is uh, on his druthers a bit, and that is Paul Le Guin. Ah, Paul Le Guin, Paul Arsenal. He's, he's a genius. I've been asked by our friend Awate, at Awate91, to mention that about a month ago, we had a worldwide trending topic on Twitter. So it doesn't happen very often, but it was, it was pretty exciting. Uh, get your hashtag Clevchance in. It was the day that Tom Cleverley chanted the wrong lyrics to a, a famous Manchester United chant. Uh, so if you want to join in with the month-old fun, get your hashtag Clevchance in. And you can. So we, all you have to do is uh, just tweet the lyrics to a Manchester 
Manchester United chant with with a slight adjustment. So at United Rant for Ed, at UTD Rantcast for me. You can also find us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash United Rant where you can get all the United Rant content right there on your Facebook page if you hit that like button. And uh, we're also there interacting from time to time. Lots of questions, including one on Facebook, Ed. What the heck was going on with the tune at the end of last week's show? You've wrought some horrors on us in the past, but this might be the worst ever. It's a it's a very, very famous Dutch song saying We Love Orange by a very famous Dutch crooner uh, with a very, very famous Dutch rapper. I, it was like number one in Holland for ages. So, sod you all. You don't know what you're talking about. I've got some friends on Twitter supporting me on this one. DJ Ed knows what he's talking about. If you didn't like that song, it's because you're not cool enough. <laughs> Sir Alex revealing to Spoonie, of course, that he had Spotify and we were asked by, uh, I think, Sean at Experts, we were asked to speculate what might be on Sir Alex's Spotify playlist. Of course, he did say that he has all the crooners on there, but I, I think he's probably, given the gang signs he's been throwing lately, I think he's probably got a bit of Dre on there, a bit of Snoop. I think he's a West Coast man. I think that aesthetic would appeal to him. <laughs> you can also hit us up on unitedrant.co.uk. There's always a comments thread on the show page for each week's episode. So I guess it's predictions time. It, it certainly is, and uh, I think I predicted a comfortable victory over Ajax. Again, just didn't get that one right, do I ever. So I, I'm going to say, I don't think it'll be an easy game at Norwich, but I think United are going to win, and I think United are going to win 2-1. Uh, I think this one's got draw and horrible, awful, uncomfortable performance written all over it. I'm really, really nervous about this one. Uh, I think this is this is a massive yellow banana skin. Uh, I think probably a, a one-all draw and just... Uh, I'm, yeah, not not optimistic about this one at all. I dearly love to be proven wrong, but I think I think given our lack of fluency, given the fact that it's been a couple of weeks since that Liverpool performance, and uh, since then, you know, we've been pretty fallible. And I think the fact is, there's no way Paul Lambert's going to let Paul Scholes have the room that Kenny Dalglish let him have, and that's been key to some of our good performances lately. So uh, I think that's very true. But if you're if you're going down to the game, uh, enjoy it. I, I've been to Carrow Road many occasions. It's it's a great place to go and watch football. I think nice tight ground and all I can say aside from that is back of the net let's be having you we're gonna need it's gonna be a tough game we need a 12th man out there where are you where are you